Welcome to the Craft Brewery Financial Training Podcast, where we combine beer and numbers to provide you with tips, tactics, and strategies so that you can improve financial results in your brewery. I'm your host, Kerry Shumway, a CPA, CFO for a brewery, and a former CFO for a beer distributor. I've spent the last 20 years using finance to improve financial results in our beer business. Now I'm helping other craft breweries to do the same. Are you ready to take your brewery financial results to the next level? Okay, let's get started. Today on the podcast, we hear from Roger Kissling, the VP of Sales and Client Management for Ironheart Canning. Roger and I talk about all aspects of mobile canning, the different package types, different product types, really how the whole process works, what you'll need to do, what Ironheart will do, roles and responsibilities, what type of space is needed, how much time it takes, all the logistics of setup and measuring quality and output and throughput, all the good stuff. We get into a bit of the pricing and what you can consider there and how to really evaluate whether mobile canning would make sense for your brewery. So for now, please enjoy this conversation with Roger Kissling from Ironheart Canning. Just a quick note, we'll be right back to the podcast. I want to let you know about a new network for beer industry professionals. It's called the Beer Business Finance Association. It's an organization of financial pros just like you looking to improve financial results, increase profitability, connect with your peers, and share best practices. So I'd love to tell you a little bit more about this. If you are interested in learning more, please email me, carry at beerbusinessfinance.com. That's K-A-R-Y at beerbusinessfinance.com. Or you can visit bbfassociation.org. That's bbfassociation.org to learn more. Hey, Roger, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Carrie. Good to be here. It is good to have you here. So why don't you give us a little bit of background on yourself and Ironheart Canning? Will do. Well, I'm Vice President of Sales and Client Management for Ironheart Canning. A little bit of background on Ironheart before myself. Ironheart was started in 2013, and we provide mobile canning services in uh, the eastern United States. It was actually started in the Northeast. We started in Connecticut. Um, You know, good personal friend of mine, entrepreneur, Tyler Willie is the founder, and he began operations in Connecticut, servicing all of New England and some of the Mid-Atlantic. And uh, then through organic growth expansion, uh, some acquisition of existing mobile canners that wanted to hang up the spikes. Um, And uh, um, we now have 80 total canning lines, 28 warehouses servicing 27 states from Minnesota to Alabama and Maine to Florida. Um, We do about fill approximately 80 million cans a year, all different can sizes all different products, beer, cider, wine, RTDs, coffee, CBD waters, non-alcoholic, you know, variety of products. Our roots are really in craft beer. That's where we started and it's still the majority of what we do. However, there has, uh, you know, been a steady march to others, you know, other products and cans over the years as well. So this year we celebrated our 10th anniversary, which is uh, pretty exciting. I came to the company six years ago and my background is in uh, is in the wine business, wine growing, also sales and distribution. I spent time working for Gallo, spent time working for Turtolato, and then came to this exciting uh, um, 
you know, it's a little different, of course, but it was funny. My experience in sales and distribution for Gallo and, you know, on the supply side also saw the interest in cans specific to those products, wine and RTDs. And even six years on, you know, the explosion of, uh, of canned RTD beverages is pretty exciting. So. Oh, that's great. What, who is your customer? Like, who are the people that are typically your customer that come to you? You know, is there a particular size? Let's just stick with breweries for now. Size of brewery or a need? Like, how, what's kind of the profile that you tend to see? It's across the map, Carrie. But, uh, you know, the, the, the classic customer that we service, I would say would be small to midsize, a small to midsize brewer. Um, they aren't looking to add a, a bunch of staff. They're maybe not quite big enough to dedicate a packaging manager that knows the ins and outs of the canning line and is running it on a regular basis. So they can stay you know, focused on making the beer. They can stay focused on, on promoting their product, making the best liquid possible. And then they're looking to Ironheart to outsource their packaging, outsource the canning, uh, and and provide you know high quality, if not better quality, than they could do themselves, be, because of our, our our dedication and and support that we bring. Even you know, but kind of back of the house stuff we could talk about later. But we're you know we're able to do that because canning is what we do every day. But that said, we package for large breweries as well. We're not necessarily their full canning infrastructure, but we do a lot of capacity augmentation or can size augmentation because our service is nimble and we're, we're plug and play. So we, without interruption to the greater production schedule, we can come in and drain a tank to turn it faster or handle a product that is a little different um, or handle an odd can size and, and, and avoid a changeover of some type of existing piece of equipment. So, you know, it's quite common that we're used in, um, of, at a larger operation in, in that uh, in that respect. Gotcha. And you mentioned can can size augmentation. What what can sizes are you doing now? And maybe related question: Are you seeing any sort of trends in in different different sizes? <clears throat> yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I think standard. Well, talk about craft beer, right? Craft craft beer is dominated by standard can size. Yeah, people have played with the sleek cans for some of their products, and I see some light lagers in sleek cans. I see, um, um, you know, of course, Six Point, who, who we have worked with in the past, they they put their beer in sleek cans too, which is interesting. But for the most part, still standard cans. Cans. Um, the interest in nineteen point two ounce cans, you know, the the, the real stove pipes, the tall boys. Um, that's a, a, um, I don't want to say brand new trend, but it's a trend that's continuing to grow. I think it was um, the pandemic put the brakes on it a little bit, right? Because um, the, they're great for concert venues. They're great for arenas because they like that bigger serving size um, in order to compete with the 24 ounce cans that you're going to get of, uh, you know, the, the, the bigger brands, domestic brands. So, so that's an opportunity. And of course um, the pandemic also increased um competition on retail shelves right with craft beer because that was the you know that was a way to uh, to get to market other than to go sales out of your brewery so with that increased competition 
um, convenience stores and C stores. Uh, I've heard them coined the last frontier of distribution, and and they like the 19.2 ounce cans as well. Um, larger selection, less shelf space. Um, you know, so you can grab them to go. Yeah. Um, now, other can sizes, of course, because we do do um, eight ounce sleek cans. Uh, we do. 375 ml cans, 250 ml slim cans, 200 ml slim cans. Those are the, the, the slim cans are the Red Bull cans. The sleek cans are, are like truly or white cloth. You know, if you're familiar with those products, we do them all. They're obviously more popular in the alternate beverages or spirits based uh, RTDs. So spirits based RTDs like that, that, that sleek can feel. Seltzers like that sleek, sleek can feel. And if you get into some of the higher ABV products, it's nicer to have a smaller serving size. Um, and, and also, if you get over a certain ABV, you have to be TTB compliant, of course, uh, with, your, uh, with your serving sizes. So uh, the 200 ml uh, may be required for that, for example, or 250 milliliter bundled together to make a liter is TTB compliant. So, uh, And then, of course, in the coffee side of it, similar, you know, people are looking to differentiate themselves with serving size and, and with uh, the package. So um, that, that's the sum of, of can sizes. Gotcha. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess I hadn't really thought about it that much. I kind of always thought the mobile canning solution was, well, we think we want to buy a canning line, but we're not quite ready to do that. Let's bring in a mobile solution. But you're also working with clients that have um, that augmentation need, right? So as you mentioned, maybe they can't do 19 twos, but you can. Right, they can't. Their existing canning line just uh, just too much of a pain, or with capacity. That's that's interesting. That's correct. So, how does it work if if um, someone's really not familiar? Maybe conceptually, oh yeah, I've heard of mobile canning, but like how how does that work? Like, how do you assess? Because um, I would imagine you're gonna you have space requirements, right? You know, the brewery would need mm -hmm. to give you some space. Um, you would need, hey, how do I get the beer here? Maybe kind of take us through kind of a typical assessment that you might with a prospective customer coming on board sure sure will but i'll start by answering your question by saying that our goal as you know as an ironheart mobile canning operation we we would like our first canning run to be as smooth as our future 50th canning run that's what we like to say and there's a lot that comes together to make that first canning run successful and it takes a lot of planning and it takes a lot of coordination between artwork and materials and liquid delivery and liquid prep and then canning line setup and execution of the packaging. These all have to come together. Um, so we have a pretty uh, structured process where we always come on site and do a site visit up front. That before that site visit, we typically have at least one phone call where we review basic requirements and what that's going to be like. And then we even do a pre-run call the day before um, uh, the canning run as well, within a couple of days of the canning run to go over some last minute details and coordinate when we're going to arrive. So, you know, that 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 repetition <laughs> that usually serves us well. But what we do on a daily basis is we bring our equipment in a box truck. They all have lift gates, so we don't need a forklift or a loading dock. We unload our equipment off of the box truck and we bring it into the facility. Um, so we do need access. Uh, the largest piece of equipment that we bring in our mobile rigs is, um, you know, we need about 50 inches 
uh, in order to access, and that's our depalletizer, our mobile depalletizer for the for the cans. As long as we have that access, uh, you know, and most breweries typically do have an overhead door. If you can fit a pallet in, I like to say, we, we likely can fit our, our equipment in. Not all breweries can do that. You know, some people have to pump sacks of grain or do what they need to do, and that's unfortunate, but um, that's pretty much the first thing that we assess is do we have access to enter the space uh, where the pro where we can do the canning, where we're going to get the product. Um, but once the access is, is, is determined, we bring all the equipment in. It, canning is a wet process, so uh, uh, we need to be able to control water or be set up in, in the cellar over a floor drain. It's also ideal if we are as close to the bright tank or the FV, you know, the, basically the packaging tanks, as possible. The shorter the hose length, shorter the hose run, uh, it just allows us to limit loss and it allows us to um, maintain temperature. Once we get over 45, 50 feet from the tanks, uh, you know, we it, it's just more difficult, especially with a, with a standard hose. And we're gonna see some uh, additional losses. Is it possible? Absolutely. But our standard uh, hoses, we usually like to be under 45, uh, under 40 feet would be ideal from the packaging tanks. Um, we set up our depalletizer, twist rinse, canning line, and uh, labeler if, if that's needed. Uh, we need about, you know, rough dimensions are 10 feet by 30 feet. Now, 10 feet by 30 feet, that gives us room on all sides of the canning line. So 10 feet by 30 feet is very comfortable. Do we regularly shoehorn into a tank alleyway that's seven feet wide and, and 25 feet long? We do. Um, you know, there's, there's considerations for uh, consumables coming onto the canning line and then what you do with the finished product on the other end if you, if you can't get around. But there are different ways to set up different configurations, either L or straight, which uh, allow us um, allow us to be problem solvers, right? We always like to make miracles happen. But so there's, there's a rough space requirements. Beyond that, our utility requirements are very modest. Um, we 120 volt power. We like 30 amps for the canning line on non-GFI so that it doesn't trip. Um, potable water connection, garden hose. Uh, com a supplemental compressed air is great for um, helping to dry the cans. We do bring an air compressor that handles the pneumatics of the canning line. So um, it's not necessary, but <clears throat> it's nice to have the air knives going and drying off the cans when as they roll off the canning line after they're rinsed. And then um, a CO2 drop. So you'd have a, a CO2 regulator on your tank that we would you know, push the beer to the canning line with head pressure on the tank. Uh, head pressures, you know, ideally we're able to get to 15 PSI. So your you know, PRVs that uh, don't blow off at, at 12 PSI obviously are, are a good thing to have on the packaging tank, a little bit higher. And then um, we also need a CO2 drop for the canning line because we'll we will use that CO2 to pre-purge the cans, to use the lid degasser if we if we think that'll improve dissolved oxygen or, or sweep foam off. And then also we use that CO2 to push our CIP chemicals and our twist rinse uh, chemistry. So um, I think you know that's you know that's how that's our setup. The flip side of it, of course, is the brewery preparation, which is just as important because we're we're one team on packaging day. We have to be aligned with our goals, and that's um, to have efficient, quality canning run. Um, 
and, and beer spec is absolutely the biggest part of that on the brewery preparation side, aside from making sure the space is clear. Um, you know, if we show up and, and, and 12 pallets of empty kegs have to be moved around, obviously that's not ideal. You know, it happens. We, we, we work with it, but really the, if the brewery can focus on product spec, that's the biggest thing. And, and that means temperature and carbonation and having that dialed in. We highly recommend that everybody has a, um, a minimum of a ZOM uh, for a carbonation testing device. And yeah, that's important for packaged product, gives you consistency, gives you accuracy, um, especially if you keep it calibrated and you know how to use it. Uh, because if the beer is over, over carbonated, it will be difficult to get it in the can. And uh, once again, we want to protect the beer and make sure we limit loss. If the beer is under carbonated, obviously, uh, it's, it's not going to taste the way that the, the brewer wants it to taste in the final package product. But there's also an elevated uh, you know, concern. But makes DO minimization more difficult, obviously, if the beer is under carbonated and, and too cold. So you know, temperature and carbonation are related. Our, our, our published spec is anywhere from 2.4 to 2.6 volumes of carbonation at 31 to 35 degrees Fahrenheit. They're inversely related. The higher the carb, lower the temperature, lower the carb, you know, higher the temperature is what we like to see. There's some style specifics in there. There's some facility specifics in there as well. And, and there are, you know, obviously we, we can certainly go lower on carb. We, we are able to go higher on carbonation as well. Um, but once again, it's something that we want to discuss because when you push limits, you you push boundaries you you obviously run the risk of pushing uh bad results right um so that's what we want to avoid i did a lot of talking there carrie i don't i kind of went on a tangent but i hope that 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 covers the most of it um the other thing for mobile service that is uh, definitely worth mentioning is that we we rely on the brewery staff for pack out because our teams they handle the cans through the canning line, they handle the date coder, they handle the labeler, um, they focus on the filling, they do all of our QC checks, our weight checks, uh, our, our seam breakdowns, because we do guarantee seams, we guarantee sanitation, we ATP swab before we start up, um, all components of quality packaging. But we like the brewery to play a role in canning as well. For me, it's very important. And I always like to say everybody in the packaging process has a responsibility for quality control. So um, typically it consists of, of two uh, staff members provided by the brewery. They catch the cans as they come off of the canning line or the labeler. They put them in, they load them into a case tray and then they apply the pack text and they palletize it. That gives them an opportunity to hold the cans, look at the label, maybe check the date codes um, and, and, and just have a role in QC. And I think that's very important that everybody does that because we very much rely and appreciate when a member of the pack out crew says, hey, can we make a label adjustment or, you know, I'm noticing this or I'm noticing that. Very important. Mm. That's great information. Yeah. What um, you had mentioned, I guess another particular is what where are all the packaging products coming from? Do you, Or how does that typically are you bringing them and is a brewery supplying them? That's probably part of your, you know due diligence process, but how, how does that typically work? We provide material sourcing and logistics. So it is an option. And we do that for the majority of our, of our customers. Uh, we have competitive rates on low MOQs and the materials are drop shipped days before the canning run. Um, 
it's not a requirement of our service. So if a customer has a source for cans and trays and pack techs that they prefer to use, that's perfectly fine. As long as we, you know, vetted the manufacturer and made sure that they're compatible with our equipment. The main thing that we need to uh, verify compatibility for are the lids, the ends that go on top of the cans. They're specific to our seamer tooling. And to be honest, Carrie, we, to be honest, Carrie, we found um, uh, over time that, I, you know, I guess this is kind of an interesting thing to discuss historically. Five, eight years ago, there were very, there were much fewer lid manufacturers and uh, and lid sources in the market. Now, you're pretty sure that you were going to get Crown, Ball, Our Dog, you know, that was about it. Maybe some MCC. Um, now you have international sources of ends, you have can pack ends, you have domestic ends, you have ends that come from different plants that have slightly different tolerances. That complexity is something that we've recognized and, and that complexity adds to difficulty day in and day out dialing in your seams uh, because these some different end manufacturers require uh, different seamer tooling. They, they require adjustments to the seamer. And the seaming operation is by far the most complicated part of the canning process. You know, forming that double seam, folding and compressing the metal in order to create that steam is the canning process. And it's the most, you're talking about very, very fine tolerances and it's very complex. So um, we prefer to supply the lids because that way we can maintain consistency of supply. That way we can um, make sure that um, we're not getting a end source or manufacturer that we know has had, on a, in, in our opinion, unacceptable variation. And we, we have seen that in the past. But that aside, um, yes, the, there are various art, artwork supply and you can get shrink sleeve cans. And now digitally printed cans are more popular. We have sources for those as well. Or we have, and we also have customers that source them on their own. And then, of course, the, the, the array of blank or bright cans that then we apply, apply a pressure sensitive label to post fill. Okay. Um, what is the production look like like how much can you guys produce in a given time and how, how does that typically set up you coming in for a day multiple days week i imagine it varies but what do you typically see there oh you know we feel the need uh so we have customers that we will come in and we will package 15 barrels for once a year and we have customers that we will package 300 barrels a week for uh, we have customers that we come in and we'll do a 30,000 or 50,000 case production run. So it does run the gamut. However, our um, single mobile canning line rig is a five head wild goose filler. Our entire fleet is wild, is wild goose. We have a lot of experience and expertise with them and we find that they serve us very, very well. And that five head filler will typically runs somewhere between 35 and 45 CPM. You can push it a little faster. You can run a little bit slower, but the name of the game is once again, quality filling. So we're first and foremost going to fill for quality filling, DO minimization and loss minimization. And if the canning line is humming along at maximum speed, as fast as it can go, it's typically not a recipe for DO minimization. Um, you kind of want to be on the edge. So we, you know, 
for the most part, will run between 35 and 45 CPM. But there's always stops and starts and, you know, depending on how many SKUs you're doing and tanks you're doing. So I typically like to uh, communicate our daily throughput more in terms of cases. Um, the different size cans fill at different rates as well. You know, so we'll fill a little bit uh, slower for 16 ounce cans. We'll certainly fill slower for 19.2 ounce cans, smaller formats. They will fill a little bit faster, but the kind of diminishing returns, you know, because of, of different parts of the process. So a, a, a single shift day, which is the majority of what we do, we'll, we'll, we will arrive in the morning, we'll, we will set up, and that takes typically about an hour and a half. In some facilities that we're really dialed in, and we, we, we're running product in an hour or less, you know, the guys are hustling and we have a good routine. And then um, while we're running, you know, we could run anywhere from, you know, you know, six barrels, maybe a touch more an hour. And um, that would give us in an eight to 10 hour day, somewhere between 500 and 750 cases is what I like to say. Um, a good full day for us is probably around 50 to 60 barrels worth of product, you know, in a, in a 12 or 16 ounce can. And that's going to give us that 500 to 750, you know cases give or take and that's a daily throughput and then we'll, we'll pack up we'll clean up that usually takes about an hour and we're gone now our employees are absolute warriors and um you know we uh appreciate our guys they're, they're all professional pack and gals guys and gals they're all professional packagers um they work very hard we do try to limit their work day to 14 hours and that's something that we always talk about and 14 hours is still a really long day um but um uh, you just, you, you cannot, you can't work back to back, uh, 18 hour days, 20 hour days. It's just too much to ask of our people. Right. So we do try to limit that. And that, in, that includes drive time. So, you know, that's the only other thing that goes into the equation for us is are you, are you three hours away from our shop or are you half an hour away from our shop? That would give us the ability to, to do a little bit more within the day, maybe run an extended shift. If the brewery is accepting of it, if we're closer, if we're farther away and there's a little bit more travel time, well, you know, well, that's on us, right? Do we want to split the shift and send another crew in halfway so that, our, our, you know, um, we, we can stick to our internal policy or or do we simply leave the equipment there and, and, and finish up the day after? So some that we collaborate with our customers on the best way to accomplish the goal and the need, but it's in our culture that we always accomplish the mission, so. Nice. I want to circle back to the packaging types just for a second. As you had mentioned, um, sort of the collaborative nature between your team and the brewery staff that's there. And, you know, they're grabbing cans and they're putting them into trays and then you, you pack tech them from there. Do you have customers that are doing, say, 12 packs or, you know, the, the six pack cardboard configurations? Are there different <clears throat> variations on that that you see? We do, uh, and I do have customers. This um, with with our process, we we don't automate. I don't have a, a mobilized cartoner, for example. So those configurations, they they just need to be hand packed. We have plenty of customers that do do that, and they make use of an auto fold box, and uh, it's an additional pack out member, usually somebody or or a couple people that will preassemble the auto fold boxes the day before. You know, they they pop out pretty easily load them into a tray and have the tray ready so that on canning day the 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 people that are doing pack out are loading the boxes you know folding maybe taping them keeping them in the mother tray and that way it's still 
a more efficient process on the packaging day. People do do it. I also work in facilities that have their own cartoner that we interface with and we push into that cartoner and then they they do it more automated with your, you know, it 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 loads it, it glues it, it fold it folds it, it loads it, it glues it, and then uh, the cartons uh, carton product come out the other side. Most typically, what we do are is is our pack techs that are you know either hand applied or run into a pack tech applicator. Gotcha. Um, let's shift and talk about kind of the particulars of maybe the agreement or the contract. So you, you, you run through your due diligence, you do the site work, you, you know, you talk about roles, responsibilities, and expectations, you get all your boxes checked. Then when it comes to sort of the agreement side, what are we typically seeing there? Like what's covered in that? Um, how do you go over that? What, what in there really needs to be discussed? How does that all work? A really good question. Uh, so Carrie, we, and uh, this is just a, maybe a little bit of a personal opinion, but it's, you know, I, I think I speak for, I know I speak for other senior managers and partners at Ironheart as well. We want everything spelled out so that we just, we know we're on the same page. Um, we, I, you know, don't like things like waivers. Um, honestly, don't really like things like contracts. You know, we, we do business on trust. We do business um, because we want to form a partnership with all of our customers we want to form a relationship and that's done on trust right and uh, that's you build a rapport you build experience track record and we work with all of our customers but our policies and procedures need to be clearly spelled out because if you know if it's miscommunicated or misunderstood well you know that's on us so we we don't have any we don't have any contracts where we um we don't ask our customers to commit to volume right we're an as-needed service um, and when we onboard a customer, the main points are, of course, in order to provide terms, there's the whole finance determination. That's very simple and very common where we request some, we request trade references and uh, provided everything is good and um, there's no red flags or lack of any, um, uh, you know, lack of any history. We move forward with a 25% with uh, deposit for the first run and then that deposit is credited against the first invoice and then we provide net 20 terms right off of the bat to all of our customers we just ask that they keep their account in good standing before before the next canning run gotcha nice um, we have pretty simple um now our other our other policies and procedures that are uh, worth mentioning and they're summarized in what we call our partner agreement it's really just our service agreement that we ask our customers to review and sign that lists our policies um payment terms. The other important one that I find is our guarantee and limitation of liability. Of course, there are there are um, risks associated with canning a product or packaging a product. And um, some of those are um, Ironheart guarantees seams and Ironheart guarantees sanitation. And we guarantee to limit loss to a reasonable level on canning day. There are other things that are outside of our control as well, such as um, we don't make any of the liquid, right? Our job is to take the liquid, take the beverage or the beer or the product and put it in the can and do our job. But we uh, have difficulty verifying or can't verify, if I'm being completely honest, liquid compatibility with a can, for example. The, um, there are certain liquids that probably shouldn't go into cans that are either you know, low pH or have certain compositions. We recommend that those cans be tested uh, and you know, Ball Corporation offers a 
uh, a free service where you can send them a sample and they'll do an evaluation of the product. That's always a good one. Um, if, um, for example, if the dissolved oxygen that we measure in the tank is extremely elevated, nothing I can do in the canning process is going to remove that dissolved oxygen. We can scrub a little bit out, right, you know, during the canning process, but the dissolved oxygen, the DO levels are, are elevated in the tank, right? Um, the packaging process, I, I can't fix that. So there are certain things that are outside of our control as well. And that those are detailed in the in our, our, our guarantee and limitation of liability. But you know, that, that it's an important thing to discuss because then we're on the same page if there ever is an issue. Um, uh, if, it, if it's my responsibility, we stand behind our service and we'll make it right. Um, but if it's something that's outside of, of, of our control, then uh, it's spelled out there so that the customer knows what to expect. Makes sense. Um, but yeah, that, you know, that's pretty, I, I'm going to be honest, that's, that's pretty much it. Like I said, we, uh, if, um, if we have certain customers that we grow with, that we um, determine, you know, we have other programs, I guess, beyond mobile canning and, and, that's a little different. So if we are dedicating a piece of equipment to a facility, we're permanently installing it there and we're maintaining it and running it, you know, there's a little bit, there's some other considerations that need to be addressed as far as, uh, you know, insurance and things of that nature. So those other, um, those other service options, I, I guess you could call them that we work with uh, certain customers on have, have, different agreements or contractual needs, but our regular mobile service, that's the, that's the sum of it. How does the, the pricing work? We don't need to get into specifics of that, but what are like the components? I imagine you have like, is there like a setup fee and a per case run and this and that? How, what, what is, if someone's evaluating this, what are the different components of that? So we, I like to say we do not have a minimum volume, right? We don't have volume minimums. But as you could imagine, we only charge per finished can or per finished case. So if we come in and we're and we only we only fill two cases of of beer, that's a pretty low revenue day. I just it doesn't pay for the the diesel that was in the truck to get us there. But instead of having a a minimum volume, we we have what's called a what we call our minimum daily service charge, and it's a I guess you could look at it as a setup fee carry, but I don't call it a setup fee. I, I just call it a, a pricing or a, an invoicing floor. So that's the minimum charge that we're going to charge for service for a day of service. And it does vary somewhat per can size. Where that intersects with our base pricing tier, you know, you can do the math and come up with a volume that's right around 18 barrels, right? So if you're at 18 barrels or more, you will only it will be a per can invoice on on finished goods minus QC cans minus any short fills or drops. We have a we have a really great system that um, summarizes all aspects of the canning running, including can counts that that goes to our customers immediately following the closing out of our job report every day. Um, but in any case, so so that's where we're at. So if you're over eighteen barrels, I like to say it, it, it's that per can rate. Now, if you go below that. As I said, we don't have a minimum volume, but if you wanted to do a 15 barrel run or a 10 barrel run, the unit economics will go up because we hit that that fixed minimum daily service charge rate. Um, it, it'll be an expensive uh, it'll be an expensive packaging run if we're only doing that one case, as I mentioned. But the more we package, the more the cheaper we are, right? Simply put, so 
once we get above that 18 barrels, we have our base pricing tier. And then once we get above 25 barrels, we have another pricing tier. Once we get above 50 barrels, we get another pricing tier and the rates go down uh, accordingly because we're, we're generating efficiency and we're, we're packaging a larger volume. Gotcha, makes sense. Now, you know, so I, it's funny just because I know that people like specifics, you know, I always like to give, uh, kind of give ranges, so to speak, you know, for, for materials, um, you know, materials rates do vary and I'll pull up uh, what I like to call my margin calculator, make sure I'm giving you kind of current accurate numbers, mm -hmm. but for the service portion of our, of our business, it, it does vary based on those volumes, as I mentioned, but you can pay anywhere from $3 a case for service, you know, um, on different can sizes to, um, $8 a case for fill service, depending on the volume. And that's, you know, that's within tier, not below our minimum service charge. Depends on the can size, depends on the volume that we do. Um, if you do pressure sensitive labeling, we do we do have a label application fee as well. Or if you wanted to do a still product or a nitro dose product, which is pretty cool. We do a lot of nitro dose beers or nitro coffees or just non-carbonated products that require nitro dosing for can rigidity. We also have a service fee for, for uh, that particular service as well. Um, and then materials, um, on the material side, if we're, if we're sourcing materials, once again, low MOQs, so basically on-demand drop ship quantities, um, including uh, an estimate for a label, right? Uh, let's say in labels the customer would, we have a recommended vendor, but customers source their own labels. You know, that'd be between eight and 10 cents a can, including that estimate, total materials per case should be in, uh, you know, $8.50 to $10.50 range per 24 pack case. Okay. All right. So people can get a pretty good sense, you know, prior to, to jumping in, all right, this is what my cost is going to be. Because yeah, as you noted, like we're trying to like be competitive with if you were to have your own canning line, you got to hire people and you got to run it. The thing's going to break down and blah, blah, blah. So you can kind of demonstrate um, kind of the cost structure under under the Ironheart scenario versus kind of go it go it yourself. Correct. Well, you know, it's the job of my my sales managers and my sales team to help uh, help customers navigate that. And a tool that I, that we typically use is a margin calculator. Now. Maybe it's an oversimplification, of course, but I know from working with thousands of breweries over the years that the numbers do work um, uh, and we can be profitable with mobile canning. Absolutely. We are competitive. Um, running your own canning line, man, that's a, you know, to go down that rabbit hole, I have that conversation all the time. I, I look at it as a classic in-source versus outsource decision, but just to understand, you know, like I said, it might be an oversimplification, but the price tag of the canning line, the equipment itself, that's not the majority of the cost of operating a canning line, right? It is, it, it's the operators, it's the staff, it's the expertise, it's the human capital. I like to say time is money. And especially in smaller operations, the head brewer, the owner, their time is very valuable, right? They drive the business. Um, so being able to do that effectively and not spend that time packaging. There, there's big value there, aside from just the cost of the equipment. Um, 
anyway, like I said, that's a bit of a rabbit hole, but I know that we are, uh, like I said, competitive. The, the main, the, the biggest, the scenario where there's the most price pressure, of course, is if you're in a full distribution model and you have a distributor partner and, you know, you're trying to hit a shelf price and the, the retailer is taking their cut and then the distributor is giving you a haircut and then you're going to market. Certainly that's where there's the least margin in it for the brewery, of course. And um, uh, you have to pay attention to your costs and efficiencies, of course. You know, something that I often talk about when, on that topic, right, of trying to control costs, which is very important, especially in the current environment, right, this year, where it seems like costs, are, costs for everything are rising. So it's very important. But, you know, our service numbers, as I mentioned to you before, this our filling service is not the majority of the cost you have in the package. The majority of the cost you have in the package is in the packaging material itself. And there are other strategies for driving those costs down through bulk purchases. Um, if your volumes are there, you know, um, ordering labels in bulk in order to get better prices on labels, ordering cans in bulk. If, if your volumes are there, even looking at traditionally printed cans, which is a, a really valuable program that I have in Ironheart that we offer nine months of free storage and pay as you go invoicing for traditionally printed cans that avoid label application and label charges. And, you know, the savings that you can get on the material side sometimes nearly offset my our, our service rates entirely, you know, or a good portion of them. So... It's interesting when you look at it from that perspective also. Interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Well, Roger, this has been great. I know this, we've only scratched the surface, but hopefully we've given people enough to consider and then you know they can think about uh, whether this makes sense for their brewery. What um, If folks want to learn more, get in touch with you, mm-hmm. figure out you know, wh- like where the Ironheart locations are and if, it's, if it makes sense, um, what's the best way for them to do that? The best way is to visit our website very easily, and it's it's ironheartcanning.com. And you'll be able to see our map. You'll be able to see a video of um, of our operation, and you'll be able to send a um, an inquiry or a request for information. It will come directly to me and my sales managers, and, and um, you'll be responded to typically within 24 hours. You get a response back, sometimes a heck of a lot quicker. And, and we can walk through any questions that you have. Uh, but, you know, the fun, if I could leave uh, kind of everybody with one little tidbit, and that is that uh, I'm always surprised by people who say, you know, I'm just not ready for package yet. And um, that always makes me scratch my head because I always say to people, look, um, uh, absolutely from the tank to the bank, your goal should be to sell as many pints in your tap room as you possibly can. That's the goal. But unless you cannot keep your taps full and you're making every ounce of beer that you can on your on your brew house and in your cellar and you're selling that all through the taps, unless that's the case, then I would I would roll off some extra beer, roll off some extra batches and and put it in the cans. And um, of course, I'm biased, but cans are superior to crowlers and to other options for to go. But the key is to have to go options because. A four pack of 16 ounce cans with your label and name on it that are packaged at the highest quality are going to last and your customers aren't going to not buy another ta- uh, another um, pint. I think that's been proven. It'll add incrementally to the sales, to your sales, but 
People will take them home. They'll put them in the cooler. They'll bring them over to their friend's house. They'll have people over on the deck for the back barbecue. And then other people will get exposed to your beer and they'll see your logo and they'll taste it. And then they will return to your tap room. And it, it's that it's that feedback loop that I think really benefits business. And um, once you're in package, you have those options. You could take advantage of that. But if you're not packaging, I think I think you're missing an opportunity. Um, so I know that's a little shtick, but that that's from hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of breweries that we worked with over the years, even ones that have moved on uh, to get their own canning lines. They all say a very common thing. And that is, I, I wish I had uh, packaging wasn't in my initial business plan until year two or year three. I almost wish I had packaged earlier because when I did, it, it really helped me take off. That's great. That's great advice. Roger, thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Carrie. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Craft Brewery Financial Training Podcast, where we combine beer and numbers so that you can improve financial results in your brewery. For more resources, tools, guides, and online courses, visit craftbreweryfinancialtraining.com. And don't forget to sign up for the world-famous Craft Brewery Financial Training Newsletter. Until next time, get out there and improve financial results in your brewery today.